Well, welcome. My name's Ben. I'm the pastor here. We are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples. That's who we are. That's what we do, and that's how we seek to do it. And as we've seen and said already so far today, we are a church who is united by faith in Jesus Christ. We find our identity in Jesus Christ. We believe our only hope is in Jesus Christ. We are committed to living lives shaped by Jesus Christ, shining the light of Jesus Christ, and telling the world of Jesus Christ who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, all for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so if you are looking for a perfect church, you are in the wrong place. But if you're here today because you're looking for a group of imperfect people who are seeking and submitting to the perfect one together, if you're looking for a church who's committed to the person and work of Jesus Christ, you are in the right place. So thank you for joining us in worship together today. I want to return real quickly. Something that was said a little bit ago, we have another family meeting next week after the service. We had one a couple weeks ago. We had about 50 people there. It was awesome. And it gave us as leaders really some clear direction, some clear tracks to walk upon as we think about where we're leading the church in the future. So join us December 11th for our end of year meeting that we have every year. We'll share with you some of the things that we've come to as leaders where we're going as a church at that meeting. If you have your phone, have a piece of paper. December 11th, after the church service, that's our annual business meeting where members vote and all of this. But we do have another one next week. Uh, it's, it's all a part of our, our plan through this fall to get together three times and to reassess who are we now? <laughs> where are we going? What's God doing here? Where is he leading us in this next season? And unlike our last meeting or the one after that, this one next week is going to be a little different because this meeting is actually only going to be for members. And the reason why it's, this one's going to be only for people who have voluntarily committed to membership of our church, uh, it's not because we have secret knowledge that we're keeping hidden. <laughs> it's not because we want to build walls and keep people out. After all, anybody is welcome to be a member who names Jesus Christ as Lord and commits to linking arms with us to follow him together. So it is open in that sense. But we want to keep this for family members only who have committed to membership simply because sometimes family needs to talk as family. <laughs> uh, sometimes family needs to uh, think about, okay, what's going on in our family and where is our family going? Because when we think about membership, it is a commitment that we make to one another, and we take that commitment seriously. So if you've committed to this church, well, what does that look like now? I'm excited for this meeting, and uh, don't, don't be nervous. Don't think I'm dropping any bombs in it. No bombs are coming next week. But if you're a member, please do join us next week, and uh, you'll, enter, you'll meet a few new members that we have in our church as well. All right. 1 John chapter 3, 19 through 24. And guys, I have to tell you, this is a passage. <laughs> um, it, it's short. Six verses. It's a very short one. Honestly, when I was working through it, there is a lot of stuff here. Not necessarily hard things to, to accept, as it, like difficult in that way, but difficult just to wrap our minds around. So please, we're going to pray in a minute here. Pray for me that I can be clear uh, and pray that, that uh, I will not misspeak with any of this. So 1 John chapter 3, 19 through 24. Open there. So in school, uh, some of us are good test takers, and others of us are not. Tests are hard. Uh, tests are not fun. 
I remember for me uh, in, in school, tests were the bane of my existence. I was much more a write-this-paper person than a take-this-test person. Because with the test, you don't know what's coming. You don't know what's going to be on it. You, you have some vague idea of the topics that are going to be covered, but it's always this process of tracking down notes, trying to discern your notes, trying to find other people's notes that are better than your notes, trying to say, I'm not going to read my notes because I'm hungry. Like the whole studying for a test process, it's it, kind of this cycle of, oh shoot, I'm not ready for this. And students have, a, have an expression for this whole uh, feeling. It's test anxiety. It's anxious, anxiety-producing. It's, it's high pressure because tests are not fun. Uh, but tests have a purpose. When we think about what a test is for, we see that tests actually measure something in order to tell us what to do next. If you think about it, And that's true for school tests, and that's true for other tests as well. So, for instance, when you take a test at school, what that test does is it measures your proficiency on a topic, right? Your proficiency in a subject. If you pass that test, your teacher knows you're ready to move on to the next thing. If you fail that test, you will be held back or be required to have some tutoring or try again. The result of that test tells you what your next step is going to be. The same is true of medical tests, obviously. Medical tests, they, they tell you certain truths about your body, your, your blood, your organs, whatever they're looking at. And if you pass those tests, those doctors tell you you're free to go. And if you fail that test, the doctor tells you that this is the course of treatment. This is the course of action. It determines your next steps. It's even, uh, we, we bought a house a couple years ago. When you move into a house, you test your house. You Test the arsenic in the water, the radon in the air. You want to know what you, everything you can discern about that house. Uh, if it passes those tests, you're, or, yeah, you're going you're to buy it. But if you, it fails those tests, uh, you, you're going to keep looking. Tests aren't fun, but tests are important. Because tests tell you what you should do next. And as we've been going through this book of 1 John, John gives us ways to test the genuineness of our faith. If you've been here throughout this series, you've heard a number of these tests. Because the reality is about meeting Jesus Christ is that when you come face to face with Jesus, when you have received his love, you change. It's like when you have a baby for the first time, or I imagine when you go to war, you cannot come back unchanged. That's true about meeting Jesus as well and receiving his love. It will change you. And so John urges his readers, look at your life. Test your life. If you have an unchanged life, it might be evidence that you have an unchanged heart. Look at your life. Check your life. If you have a changed life, it might be evidence that you do have a changed heart. In other words, our changed lives, the way that we live, it doesn't It doesn't save us. However, if we're saved, our lives will change. (laughs) Let's not get the chicken before the egg here. We're coming to Christ. Things look different. And so we can test ourselves to test the genuineness of our faith. In this passage, we look again at a test of the genuineness of our faith, this time by continuing to look at the topic we were in last week, and that's the topic of love. Genuine love is evidence of a genuine faith. But I hope you don't get test anxiety. 
because in this passage, John tells us what to do if and when you, like me, fail that test. So let's pray one more time, and we'll dive into this together. Father, what we know for sure is that we have received perfect love. Help us, God, be people who reflect that love out into the world. And Father, when we fail to do so, teach us what to do through this passage. We give this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's start reading. I'm going to start reading in verse 16, reading through verse 20. We have it up here on the screen, but open it up in your Bibles if you have them with you. Here we go, starting in verse 16 from last week. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed, in truth. All that was from last week, now this week. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. We start off here just by reminding you the end of last week, how our passage stopped at the end of of last week. It's looking at love. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He was talking about love last week, and he was setting the bar for what love looks like. He starts the bar by, set, by setting it really low uh, with Cain. Uh, if you don't murder your brother, that's a good, you know, a good uh, chance you love people well. And we passed that test pretty well. And then he raises the bar to Jesus. He says, okay, well, if you really love, you love like this. It doesn't just look like not taking someone else's life. It looks like laying down your life for someone else. And we all realize, oh shoot, that's a lot harder to do. It's a lot harder to not, to lay down our lives than it is just simply to not take someone else's life. Lay down your life in self-sacrificial love for others, just like Jesus did. That was the command from last week. And it said this, that if anyone had the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That's the question. The answer is that he's implying it doesn't. If you see your brother in need and you have the means to help him and you choose not to, God's love does not abide in you. You must not really love God. <laughs> love indeed and in truth. Lay down your life. Love sacrificially. That's the test. <laughs> And then we come to verse 19, and it says this. Let me read it again. By this, by loving and deed and truth, we shall know that we are of the truth of Jesus and reassure our hearts before him. That's the test. So are you reassured? <laughs> I feel like if the question is, do you love like Jesus, and, and then reassure your hearts with this, it sort of implies, well, then it should encourage us. It should reassure our hearts. However, we know we don't often live up to that standard, right? It all begs the question, okay, 
uh, I, I, th- I thought I love God, but what about when I don't love like Christ? What about when I'm just about as self-seeking as anyone else? What about when I fail this impossible test? What then? Or to use John's words that he's about to use in verse 20, what about when my heart condemns me? Those are vivid words. My heart condemns me. You understand what it means without me even explaining it. It's talking about our consciences being pricked. It's that feeling we get when we're made painfully aware of our deficiencies, painfully aware of our sin, when our heart says, you're a hypocrite. (laughs) What do we do when that happens? But what I love about this letter that we have seen time and time again is that even though John speaks directly to some of these things, he's also incredibly real about our weaknesses. He's real about the fact that he's giving us commands that we cannot naturally keep on our own. I think the best example of this is from John chapter 1, uh, sorry, John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. This is what it says. He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, that's direct. That's to the point. Don't sin. And then he says this, but if anyone does sin, <laughs> we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's real. He knows we're going to fail. And when we do, he tells us where to look for hope. Look to Jesus Christ. He is righteous. He is able to come before the perfect and holy God of the universe to be our advocate. So don't sin, but rest in grace. At the same time, don't sin, but then if you do, rest in grace. We have a hard time holding these two things at the same time. (laughs) Don't sin, rest in grace. And he's doing the same thing here in chapter 3. So let's look back at chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Look at, look at your Bibles. This is what it says. Love indeed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. That's the direct part. That's the part that's very clear and straight to the point. Love one another, right? But what if we don't? <laughs> what if our hearts condemn us? What do we do then? Well, he says then, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. That's real. He knows we're going to (laughs) fail. He knows that when we fail, we need to know where to look for hope. If our heart condemns us, don't listen to what your heart says if you're in Christ. Don't listen to what your heart says about you. Listen to what God says about you. Because God is greater than your heart. What he says matters. And he knows everything. He knows the worst things you've done. He knows your deepest, darkest secrets. He knows the bad you've done in the past. He knows the bad you're going to do in the future. And he knows the ways that you have failed to love people over and over and over and over again. I'm just talking about myself here. He knows about the times that you've got the world's goods and you see your brother in need and you choose to close your heart against him. He knows all that. In fact, he knew that before he died on the cross for you. He's not surprised. But do you know what else he knows? He also knows what Jesus did. He knows that Jesus died on the cross. He knows that you've trusted in Jesus' death in your place as your substitute. And he knows how because of that, the sins 
that previously separated from you, him from you, have been washed away. So if John chapter 2 was saying, hey, don't sin and rest in grace. Don't sin, rest in grace. This passage now is saying, love one another. And when you fail, rest in grace. Love one another, rest in grace. Because we struggle to do both at the same time. I do. We all do. This is very human of us to not know how these two things go together. You know, I think that all of us, and maybe you should ask yourself this question, which one you're more prone to, but are you more prone to focus on the commands of God and forget the grace of God? Because if that's you, you, you'll tend to become a legalist, right? Really judgmental of people. Or, on the other side, maybe you focus so much on the grace of God that you forget the commands of God and you just do whatever the heck you want. That's the other side of it. That doesn't make you a legalist. That just gives you more a license. It means that you forgot who your king is. But a life shaped by the gospel are both of these things at the same time. It's don't sin, rest in grace. Love one another, but rest in grace. <laughs> a life by the gospel uh, causes you day by day to seek to live for him, to seek to love, to seek to obey. While even simultaneously, day by day, you come to him and lay your weaknesses, your deficiencies at the foot of the cross. Lay your failures before him and receive his grace and his love. So what are you more prone to? Focusing on commands and forgetting grace or focusing on grace and forgetting commands? Focus on commands, forget grace, your conviction's going to crush you. <laughs> Focus on grace, forget commands. This passage is saying he might not have you. But hold both at the same time. And you will know that you are not only living in obedience to him, but that you have everything you need in Jesus Christ to have hope forever. So love one another. Rest in grace. If you are in Jesus, you are not condemned. End of story. If you are in Jesus, you can be confident before God. And that's the foundation for the rest of our passage. The first half of this passage sets us up like this. this it, ta- it's, it helps us think about the gospel. It points us to the fact that we're not condemned by faith in Jesus Christ. We can be confident before God by faith in Jesus Christ. But now, upon that confidence now, we continue to read. So join me back in verse 21 through 24. Because now it's going to get really confusing. <laughs> Lord, help me. All right. Beloved... If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. That sounds familiar. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Okay. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and God in him. By this, we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Okay. In the Old Testament, there was a a young lady uh, by the name of Esther. Now, you 
probably heard of her if you've been around. Uh, we actually went through the book of Esther about a year and a half ago from beginning to end. But if you don't know the story, I'll tell it to you. Uh, Esther was a young Jewish girl. She was in exile in Persia. Um, and through a series of amazing events, she goes from this exiled girl, young girl, to the queen of the entire empire. <laughs> it's an amazing story. But as she's the queen, now she's, uh, she, she catches wind of this genocidal plot to wipe out her entire people. And Esther comes to realize through the wisdom of her uncle, or is it her cousin? I don't remember. There we go. That she alone is in a position to beg the king for mercy. She alone might have the ear of the king to go to him and to ask him to stop this. But the problem with that is that it's illegal for Esther to go before the king. It's it's illegal for anyone to go before the king because if she does, there is a death sentence for her. Unless if the king in mercy holds out his scepter to her. So this is high stakes. But Esther bravely says in in a passage in chapter 4, she says, If I perish... I perish. And she commits to go before the king and do what only she can do, to seek to save her people from certain death. And so she prepares to go into the courtroom of the king to make her request, in so doing, condemning herself. The scary thing is that Esther had no reason to be confident that the king was going to have any mercy on her. If you actually look closely at the details of chapter 4, you realize that the king has not called her to him in over a month. Yeah, she pleased him in the past, but it's been a month now, and she hasn't heard a thing. She has every reason to think that this incredibly disgusting king is done with her. And so we come to chapter, uh, Esther chapter 5, and Esther, we read, is standing in the inner court outside of the throne room of the king. And this is what we read in verse 2, that the king looks up, and when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. We, we as the readers, we, we feel relief in that moment. Like, okay, hope for Esther, hope for the Jewish people. Because we didn't know which way this was going to go. Esther was condemned simply by walking into the room. And she had no reason to have confidence that her request was going to be received, that her request was going to be granted. Now that's Esther, before the king of Persia. But I want to compare Esther between, before the king of Persia to us and the king of the universe. Because we're different than Esther in a number of ways. The Bible calls us, the believers, uh, the church, uh, the Bible calls us the bride of Christ. And in a sense, we are like Esther in that our husband is the king, right? However, unlike Esther, when we come before the king, we do not tremble. We don't have fear of what he might do to us when we come before him to make our requests. We don't wonder whether uh, we can go before his throne. We don't wonder whether he delights in us. We don't wonder because of Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we know that we have his favor. Because of Jesus Christ, we know that when we make requests, we can make those requests with confidence that he will hear those requests. We can go boldly before the throne of God because we are pure in Jesus Christ. We have his favor in Jesus Christ. 
And now it's, it's interesting how this whole passage is written. So we have to be thoughtful Bible readers here, okay? But I'm going to read a couple of these verses again from verse 21 through verse 23. But keep in mind the fact that we have confidence before the king, okay? It says this, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because he keeps his commandments and, and do what pleases him. Sorry, because we keep his commandments. There we go. We keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. I mean, if we take this passage out of context, we're going to make a couple mistakes, right? <laughs> there's, there's a couple things in this passage that we could rip out and, and slap on a bumper sticker and really mislead people. Um, and, but thankfully, at this point, we have a pretty good grasp of the context of this passage, that what this passage is talking about, John is assuming here that genuine faith in Jesus and genuine love for one another go hand in hand, right? He's assuming that you cannot love Jesus and not love other people. He's assuming that these two things are absolutely inseparable. So keep that in mind now when we read this. When he says to keep his commandments, verse 22, and then he goes on to clarify what that means, that that means to believe in the name of Jesus Christ, his son, and love one another, verse 23, he's not making a list. He's talking about two things that go together as one thing. He is talking about genuine heart and life transformation by faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? One thing. Genuine heart and life transformation by faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to say it again because I can't. Genuine heart and life transformation by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the command. That's what he's calling us to. A compound command. Two things at once. Genuine heart and life transformation by faith in Jesus Christ. When we understand that, that makes all the difference here. Because when we have that, we can pray confidently, knowing that it doesn't depend on whether we simply love one another. It depends on whether we have a true, genuine heart and life transformation by faith in Jesus Christ. And if we do, then whatever we ask, we receive from him. And that's the second hang-up. Because <laughs> that sounds pretty good. But it also makes God sound a little bit like a, like a vending machine. And I don't know if you've ever prayed before, but that's not how prayer seems to work. It makes it sound like God is just giving us a blank check and saying, hey, well, keep my commands and you know, I'll give you whatever you want. But again, if you've prayed before, you know that's not how it works. The last two chapters, sorry, two chapters later from here, we come to John 5, verse 14, and in that passage, I don't have it up here, uh, John says this, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Uh, so it's true, like if we, if we read this passage just on its own, it just seems like he's saying, hey, blank check, if you, if you obey Jesus, you know, do what, what, just ask, say the word. But here's the point. Here's something we need to remember when we take this, this passage and we put it into the context of all of Scripture. Listen closely. Our prayers can never overpower the will and wisdom of God. 
Our prayers can never overpower the will and wisdom of God. And if you look at everything the Bible says about prayer, it defends that truth. Yet, we look at this, and what do we do with it? I told you this was hard. Because it does seem to me to be a promise that the prayers we pray is a promise that the prayers of one who is genuinely in Christ will be heard and answered according to his will and wisdom. So, our lives, it seems, do shape our prayers. And this isn't just something that we see here. James chapter 5, we read that the prayer of a righteous person has great power and is working. It ties our lives, our obedience to his answers. 1 Peter 3, 7, it says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 1 Peter 4, 7, by self-control and, sorry, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It's connecting our life with our prayers. But here's the point that we have to take away. The point is not that we earn our answers by our life. The point is that by our good lives, we, it's not that we can, we can convince God to answer our prayers the way we want if we were just good enough. What he's saying is that the prayers that reach the ears and move the hands of God are prayers that come from a genuine heart and life-transforming faith. Again, we can't separate these two things. Transformed heart, transformed life go hand in hand. And when somebody truly has that transforming faith, the ears of God are open to them. When somebody truly has that transforming faith, the hands of God move for them according to his will and according to his wisdom. And would we want it any other way? Now we can boldly approach the throne because of Jesus Christ, confidently making our request before him, knowing that he hears and he will answer according to his wisdom 